You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and I have not been indicted on felony charges this week. But I did have two chats with interesting, smart, thoughtful people in the media business, because that's what we do here. First, I talked to Ariel Helwani, who is the king of all mixed martial arts reporters. He also happens to be my Vox Media colleague. I had him on to explain why Ari Emanuel, who's a Hollywood super agent, is now running a fighting and fake fighting empire. A few years ago, Emanuel's Endeavor Group spent billions buying the ultimate fighting championship, and now it's spending billions more, kind of, to buy world wrestling entertainment. This is a big deal. It's kind of a confusing deal. And I think it says a bunch about the state of TV and streaming and sports right now today in 2023. So we talked about all of that. And then, speaking of sports, I talked to Dave Finocchio, who broke into sports media by co-founding Bleacher Report when he was in college. And he had a really successful run there. He sold the company, stayed on with the company once it had been bought by what was then called Time Warner. And now he's got a new company. It's called The Cool Down. It's got nothing to do with sports and everything to do with easy-to-digest, upbeat news and information about the environment. Talked about why he thinks that's a promising sector to build a new media business and how he plans to make money there. And I'm a little bit confused about that, but you can listen and see if you can figure it out. And we also talked about the difference between launching a media startup in 2005 and doing it in 2023. This is a good one for media business nerds, which is me and probably you since you're listening to this podcast. Okay, here's me and Ariel Helwani. I'm talking with Ariel Helwani, who is going to help us understand a major, major M&A deal in media. I often complain on this podcast that that all the M&A we were promised in the last few years hasn't happened. But here we have a giant deal. Uh, Ariel is the king of mixed martial arts journalism, which he practices basically everywhere, including the MMA Hour with Ariel Helwani, produced by my colleagues over at Vox Media. Welcome, Ariel. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Endeavor, the giant talent agency, which yes. also owns the UFC, is now buying slash merging with the Worldwide Wrestling, not Federation, Entertainment, right? Right. Uh, WWE. World Wrestling Entertainment. Okay, yeah. So you can tell how old I am and how detached I am from, yeah. from, it my, used mix, to be called from my combat the sports. WWWF, the World Wide Wrestling Federation. So you weren't too far off, but that was like in the 70s. So I don't want to. Yeah, well, I'm very old. And that's when I was watching <laughs> pro wrestling when I was a kid. So there's huge numbers being thrown around here. Numbers like 9 billion, 21 billion. It's a weird structure. Endeavor is sort of buying WWE and then spinning it off with UFC. Do I have that, I have that structure correct? Yes. It's a fascinating thing because it feels like my two worlds are colliding here because uh, I grew up a pro wrestling fan and I've long believed that MMA's roots uh, are, are entrenched in the world of pro wrestling. Uh, you can't tell the, the history of MMA without talking about pro wrestling and the UFC has certainly taken a lot of inspiration from pro wrestling and now to see on Monday you know the announcement with Ari Emanuel and Vince McMahon and the logos you know they, they, they're always kind of like flirting with each other and you know maybe a guy goes here and there but never really under the same umbrella like we're seeing now so it's a little surreal yeah i want to ask you what it all means but first of all i just want to explain the structure right so endeavor which was a talent agency and then bought ufc and then went public um i think i have that order correct and so what was a talent agency sort of became a fighting production company so now they have ufc and wwe which they're spinning out into a separate company so i've got the structure right i've heard people saying oh ari emmanuel now runs a fighting empire as someone who spends your life covering mixed martial arts which is an actual sport are you okay with, with that being described as a fighting empire do you do you see rest pro wrestling which is fake and and ultimate fighting and MMA as the same thing or they're on a continuum and do the, and how do the fans feel about it? So there's a lot there. First of all, 
I, I don't love the word fake if only because, you know, what they do is is real in the sense that their bodies go through hell. They right? are pounding the crap out of, they are yes. athletes who are beating the crap out of each other, but it's in scripted. a stage presentation. Scripted yes, is, is what I, I personally prefer. Um, obviously, they're not the same. Like, I would never call uh, pro wrestling, you know, a sport like I would MMA. What they do is athletic. And there are elements of sport in there, but it's obviously entertainment and scripted and all that stuff. Like I said, I've, I've always found there to be, you know, a lot of connections. In fact, if, if we had a Venn diagram, I, I believe that the middle part is, is quite large there um, in terms of the similarities. And in fact, I have often said as well that MMA is a lot more like pro wrestling in the way that it's structured, and in particular the UFC, than, 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 than the, the world of MMA and the UFC and boxing. People like to compare MMA to boxing. It's actually a lot more like pro wrestling for this reason. There's long been one dominant organization. The way they, you know, hire and fire people, the way they sign fighters, talent, etc., is very similar to the one dominant organization in pro wrestling, as opposed to in boxing, where you could be your own promoter, you could go here, you can get, you know, a, a bidding war for this fight, you go to this network, etc, etc. So there's a lot of similarities there. And Dana White has talked in the past about taking inspiration from Vince McMahon from WWE. When yeah. when Zufa bought the UFC in the early 2000s, they used a lot of that to rebrand the company. So I wrote about UFC when the Zufa brothers bought it years ago for the Forbes Fertitta and, brothers. And so they called it Fertitta. Zufa. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you. Um, we had a great picture. This is back when magazines would like do elaborate photo shoots yeah. just for like a three page article. But it was very clear then that they were in the very beginning stages of trying to to dress up ultimate fighting mixed martial arts more like wrestling to make it more attractive to the audience. Because at the time it was, it was, it wasn't that sexy. It wasn't that uh, theatrical. No, it was very raw. It didn't look great. The production didn't look great. And, and we're not even getting into the rules and stuff like that. I'm just talking mm -hmm. about the presentation. So there's actually, you know, another great story. A few years later, the Fertitta, Zufa, they're bleeding money. And, you know, they're, they're pretty much, you know, in the ninth inning of their, their attempt to resurrect this UFC brand, if you want to call it that. And they come up with this idea entitled The Ultimate Fighter Reality Show, where they would bring 16 fighters and they would have them live in a house and they would all fight each other and there would be an ultimate fighter, right? They uh, shopped this around to a ton of different networks and no one wanted to take it. And so they decided to do a time buy with Spike TV in 2005. And Spike TV was the home of WWE at the time. And they were interested in this. And they, they decided to go and ask Vince McMahon for his blessing to put the Ultimate Fighter on at 11.05 p.m. Eastern immediately after Monday Night Raw. Vince could have said no. He said yes, didn't think it was a threat. And that really helped explode the UFC. Just to underline that, right? Time buy is you're literally saying we would like to buy time on your network to put our instead of you paying us to run our program yes. on your network, we're going to reverse it because we need the distribution and the eyeballs. And fast forward to now, UFC is this giant, giant business. Why are UFC and WWE particularly valuable today in 2023 to Endeavor or to anyone? What what makes them stand out in, in today's media environment? Okay, there's a few things there, but number one. Look, you know, um, I can go out and try to buy the Suns. I can try to buy the T-Wolves. I could try to buy a sports team, and that's great. And sports are on fire. But here you can buy an organization. You could buy the league, so to speak, right? And so with TV deals coming up for both of these entities, UFC and WWE, there's a lot, there's billions upon billions of dollars to be made. Endeavor bought the UFC in 2016 for $4.025 And at the time, seven years ago, a lot has changed. A lot of us thought like, wow, you paid double what Steve Ballmer paid for the Clippers? Like, I kind of would rather buy an NBA team. And now I've changed my stance. Uh, you own the organization. You get to do a great deal with ESPN. That deal is only going to get bigger by the time their, um, their rights deal is up in a couple of years. Pay-per-view is on fire for them. I mean, the UFC essentially at this point is like the last entity that is really killing it consistently in the pay-per-view world. You know, WWE has their deal with Peacock, where if you subscribe, you get all the uh, the shows. So you can own that. And now you do the same thing with WWE, and you have this two-headed monster where perhaps when the deals are coming up, you could package them together to an ESPN, to a Disney, to a Comcast, to yeah. a Fox, or you split them up. Streaming is on fire. Like, there's so much there. So this, to me, is as much of a rights deal as anything. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you about rights and streaming and how that all comes together in, in the business model. But I mean, part of it, right, is just to underline this, is you can own a live sports league at a time yeah. when live sports are one of the last things that people will watch on television. And there were lots of supposed bidders for WWE. WWE has been supposedly for sale forever. I interviewed uh, the CEO, Nick Khan, a couple of years ago. and more or less said, sure, we're, we're, we're open for business, and then had to sort of walk back. But people have been speculating it's, it'll be sold forever. There's lots of people who might have wanted to own this thing. We heard Saudi might want to buy it. It seems like the kind of thing Netflix would have poked at because they say they don't want sports, but they also are interested in owning a whole league. Why did Endeavor end up owning WWE? Endeavor's in a mode right now, as you said, they've evolved from just being a, a talent agency to owning entities. Um, they purchased the uh, the bull riding league as well. They purchased the UFC, so they want to own these entities, so then they can then go out and you know, like I said, sell them off, uh, licensing deals, TV deals, all this type of stuff, as opposed to just buying a team or just being in the business of hey, we're going to represent you and you're going to cut this big deal to do this movie. And so I give them a lot of credit for spitting off there. They could have just stayed as that agency and done very well. Um, but now what they've done is, all right, they've had success with these, these brands, but they're taking the UFC, they're putting it into this other bucket separate from Endeavor that the WWE is going to go in. And it leads me to believe is like, are, how into combat sports are they right now? Because combat sports is doing very well. So you, you got UFC, you got WWE. Are we going after boxing next? Are we going to try to make a run? Dana White has often said that he would love to get into boxing and he's attempted, but hasn't had success. So it feels like they're trying to own a niche thing right now that is doing very well. And they've got two of the biggest players in the world now. And are there synergies for them? I mean, um, they're both combat sports. I'm sure there's some back-end stuff you can you can consolidate. Is it, Or is it just that they can now go to a Comcast or whomever and say, we have one giant collection of rights here and we're going to make one big overall deal and that's the real value? No, there's a ton of synergy. I mean, the fan base is similar. I know there's some MMA fans that hate pro wrestling there's some pro wrestling fans that hate mma but there are others like me who like and respect both we've even seen talent in the past go from one to another probably the most famous case is brock lesnar he was wwe champion went to ufc vice versa cm punk did the same ronda rousey did the reverse uh, the likes of conor mcgregor have always talked about wanting to do something like this so there's a lot of synergy there it's very easy for a ufc guy to go over to wwe and then you have the fan base follow or vice versa it doesn't always work but just from like just from a promotional presenting standpoint like all that stuff there are so many similarities and even you know nick who you reference and, and full disclosure nick used to be my agent so you know i always like to say that when talking about him he has long been a combat sports fan. And I think he may have even talked to you about it. I mean, his first entry into this world of representation was the likes of Manny Pacquiao and Freddie Roach. Um, he's long been a huge boxing fan, MMA fan, obviously pro wrestling fan as well. So having him, and by the way, having Nick Khan and having Ari Emanuel, arguably two of the most influential agents, quote unquote, of the last decade plus together at the negotiation table. And then you add a Dana White, you add a Vince McMahon, like the characters here, the personalities here, very much larger than life. Those two guys, though, in particular, Ari and Nick, I think uh, a lot of people in the business would say two of the very best at what they do in terms of negotiation. And now they are together. Yeah, it's going to be good for you to you get to cover all this. Explain how you think the business is, is going to pan out. Um, the WWE for years did its own streaming uh, subscription service and was kind of a pioneer in that. And then at some point in the last few years said, actually, we're just better off selling these rights to traditional TV slash Peacock and backed out of that pioneering role. Do you think they create their own streaming service again? Or do you think the value is in selling this stuff to the Foxes and Comcast of the world? You know, I wonder, uh, I lean towards the latter, although I wonder if Endeavor looks at the deal that they cut with ESPN for the UFC pay-per-view. So basically when they did the TV, deal with ESPN back in uh, well in 2018 it kicked off in 2019 a few months into the deal because things were going really well uh, they cut a deal with ESPN where they gave ESPN the exclusive rights to their pay-per-views so that means you couldn't get it on DirecTV anymore in demand etc you could only get it via ESPN plus you had to sign up for ESPN plus and then you had to pay an extra amount like $70 or whatever it is now and initially people thought well, now you're gonna have to ask people to go on an app and watch it it has been a massive success for not just ESPN, but the UFC as well. And so I wonder if Endeavor says, look at what we did here. Maybe we now take back those pay-per-views and we try to sell them off to someone 
and and get people to pay extra for that as opposed to now if you pay your whatever it is 6.99 7.99 for peacock you get everything there's no extra price for wrestlemania even like the, the biggest show of the year and so i wonder if they take a step back and think hey maybe we can even make more money here because the long-standing model for for wrestling and ufc did this as well and you, co- you correct me when i'm wrong was you'd have free programming on the likes of Spike Network or mm-hmm. USA, USA and that came yeah. out week came out weekly. That was free, and then sort of every month it built to a pay per view event that people would pay a premium for. They could also go to live events, and then periodically there'd be these mega events like WrestleMania. And so there was a mix of free and paid. You know, they sort of scripted the stuff and, and, and arranged fights so people, you know, would pique their interest every month and then really pique their interest once a year. And then, like you said, uh, WWE just moved away from that and said, you, you pay one thing, it's all in, and, mm-hmm. and it's you buy in. So that model could still evolve again is what it sounds like. I think so. Um, and because there are NBC deals coming up and the Fox deals coming up and who knows what the landscape is in a couple of years, wouldn't be surprised. I have no knowledge of this, but wouldn't be surprised if Disney is of interest. Obviously, Nick has had a long standing, very good relationship with you know ESPN and Jimmy Pataro, who's the president of ESPN. And so there's just a lot of possibilities here. And then when you talk about the two brands being aligned, like for example, May 6th, there's a pretty big UFC event. It's UFC 288. It's a pay-per-view event in New Jersey. That same night, there's a pretty big WWE pay-per-view event going down in Puerto Rico, Backlash. I could see the days of them going head-to-head on the same night coming to an end very soon, right? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's a weekend where, you know, Saturday night is UFC and Sunday it's WWE in the same market. And there's some alignment there in terms of cross-promotion. So feels like we're just scratching the surface. And, and quite frankly, I'm still trying to wrap my head around all of this because yeah. it's so mega, but it uh, feels like there's a lot of interesting things to come. You're rattling off a bunch of names. Uh, Ari Emanuel, Nick Khan, Vince McMahon, Dana White. A lot of these guys are, are high testosterone, volatile, theatrical people. Vince McMahon is the only person I've been terrified to interview. I thought he was going to hit me during the interview. Uh-huh. Um they're all kind of reporting up to Ari Emanuel. It seems like that's a lot of ego and a lot of characters in, in one org. Does that is that sustainable? Yeah, it remains to be seen, um, especially, you know, it seems based on what was said on Monday that the hierarchy is is Ari and then Vince and even Vince is above Dana. Nick is the president now of, of WWE, he goes from CEO to president. And so do I think Vince McMahon is going to tell Dana White how to run the UFC? No, but you know you do wonder, and, and you know Dana has had some uh, some bad press as of late uh, with them trying to get this off the ground, and and obviously it's all a publicly traded company soon to be. You do wonder what everyone's future is. You know, I've I've seen this a few times now over the past decade plus covering this uh, crazy world of fighting, where one company buys another. Nothing on this level, of course. But I remember when the UFC bought their rival Strike Force in 2011, and I did the first interview with Dana about that. And the line that he used over and over, which has become somewhat of a, a meme, is "business as usual." He kept saying "business as usual," business, and it wasn't business as usual. Eventually, they absorbed strike force and a lot of people lost their jobs and all that stuff so you know whatever is said now isn't necessarily going to be the case in a year or two there are zero business combinations where all the businesses remain a hundred percent unaffected years later they're, mm-hmm. they're always whether by ego or choice or or randomness they, they always get mixed up it'll be fun for you i cannot believe this is our first our first collaboration podcast so we'll figure out other reasons to do it thank you for joining us my pleasure. Yeah, when you slacked me, I thought I was being uh, I thought I was being trolled. I was like, "Wow, the big man is reaching out." I appreciate. I it. I, I felt shocked that you were on our Slack and reachable because <laughs> you're a media superstar. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you. Thanks again to Ariel. And in a minute, we're going to talk to Dave Finocchio. But first, a word from a sponsor. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. 
Real Traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Talking to Dave Finocchio, who co-founded and ran Bleacher Report. If that name's familiar, it means you've listened to this podcast a lot because he was back here in February 2018. Um, Bleacher Report was then owned by the company that used to be called Time Warner. Dave left that company in 2019. Now he is starting a new thing. It is called the Cool Down. Well, I like the enthusiasm. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tell us what the Cool Down is. Uh, the Cool Down is aiming to be the world's first mainstream climate brand. We're trying to connect consumers, real life Americans, to climate so that they they feel like active participants um, in what's uh, what's happening to our climate right now. We are trying to make it a lot easier for them to take real-life actions to make their lives better. I, I like it when you leave with brand instead of publication or website. But it is a website, right? It's a media we ha- company. We have a website, yeah. That's not the, the entirety of the business model. Probably won't be a website. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. You're smart about media in general. I want to talk to you about all of that stuff. And I'm always interested in hearing people who are operating media companies talk about how they operate them, and in your case, how you start them. And I'm particularly interested in sort of getting your perspective on what it's like. When did you start the cooldown? We launched in July of 2022. Okay. So nine months, not, nine or 10 Not months, a year old. Like I'm that, really yeah. curious about what it's like to launch now versus when you started Bleacher Report, what things work, what things don't. But let's just start at the very beginning. You left Bleacher Report. You left, you'd been at Warner, what was then I think still called Warner Media, Time Warner. Yeah, when I, I stayed for about six months after the AT&T acquisition to help with, uh, it was very valuable time spent. You got a little taste of, of, of working at a giant megacorp and then an even gianter megacorp until they split off. When you left that, was your thought, I'm going to hang out for a couple of years and then start a new media company? Or or some people I talked to who do media, get out, go, I'm never going back again. This, this stuff's stupid. It's brain damage. I'm never going to touch it again. What was your thought? Like my overarching thought was that I felt like I sort of felt drained as a human, um, which I, th- I think media will do that to you if you're if you're in it for for long enough. I felt like I was a less creative person than I used to be, and that really bothered me. I'd just spent so much time in finance and HR meetings. As Bleacher Report went from a startup to a 550 person company inside a megalithic company, and so I, I just like I needed to get out of that because I just felt like I was becoming a like a cog in a machine sort of a deal. It was great on one hand, but um, when AT&T was, was buying Time Warner, basically everything that I was doing and wanted to do was frozen for, we had a couple of acquisitions lined up, things that could have been transformative. Like it, it sort of, it just sort of ceased to be fun. I also got a bit skeptical about the sports landscape in general. Just I'm a little bit ideological about sports I want sports to sort of be magical. I want I want young people to fall in love with sports, and that's that's part of why I got into it. And uh, sort of the closer I got to the sun, the more my perspective formed around, you know, uh, at the end of the day, this is about ARPU and sports owners trying to get richer, and just everything is about revenue, revenue, revenue. And I, I don't want to spend the next five years of my life just trying to convince young people to bet on sports. Nothing against sports betting. That's just not how I wanted to spend my time. So I just knew it was time to time to move on. So you wanted out, and then, but was your thought, I'm the next thing I'm going to do is going to be a media company, or I'm going to actually invest in sustainable whatever? Or my thought process had nothing to do with media. Yeah, my thought process was, was I had an open mind. I wanted to get away from sports. That was my first. Nothing against sports, but I wanted I wanted to just see different problems and look at different business models. So I did investing for a couple of years. I did an EIR stint at a VC. I advised companies. I just like tried to use different parts of my brain that I hadn't used in a while. And mostly I wanted to I wanted to work on something I was really passionate about. I would say that's my that was my overarching goal of like, I don't want to be bored. I want to find like a second mountain in life mm-hmm. to climb. I got really lucky the first time around. Like I want to do something else. You that, started Bleach Report at what age? I was 21. 21, 
Not not even out of school, I'm assuming. Just yeah, I started working on it uh, when I was a second semester senior in college. And then you guys had the dream, right? Like you built this thing really quickly, you sold it for a bunch of money, made money, and then you got to manage this thing at a big corporate. It was Bleacher Report for a time was like one of the most successful old media digital acquisitions. Like they bought it, it got bigger and better in some ways. Um, so you really had a great experience. I mean, I know you're was soured on it by the end of it, but you had a great run. Yeah, I was, I, it was a fantastic experience. Um, yeah, post-acquisition, it went as well as it possibly could have. And uh, yeah, anything that was sour at the end mostly just got sour because there were too many too many layers of giant media conglomeration acquisition stuff. So you're in this cool position where you're like, I have options. I can do a lot of different stuff. Um and a lot of, you know, the standard thing is for a founder to come in and they've got a story about they realized one day they had to solve this problem and it's a pit. You know, it can be true. Is that often how it sounds? Yeah. Okay. Often it's not. <laughs> and I'm al- I always think there have to be – I know there are people who say I want to run a company and I'm going to go look for a, a, a company that I can make that will work. Like the guy who did Harry's. Yeah, yeah. Like didn't start out wanting to – make awesome razors, right? He tried four or five other things and got to that. And to me, that's a much more interesting story than I woke up one day and realized that the men needed to get a subscription razor company made by a German man. You know, so my long-winded way of saying, did you have other thoughts prior to getting to a climate-focused publication? Yeah, I I probably had two or three other things um, on the, whatever it was, it was probably a two and a half year sort of uh you know, like part-time, look at a bunch of stuff, period of my life. And I, I had either two, two and a half things where I, I went to bed thinking, like, I'm going to go do this thing. And then I'd sleep on it for a couple nights. And I'd sort of like my stomach would just sort of say, like, you don't, you don't want to be, you don't want to do this every day. Like, this is not, this is not how you want to spend the next 10 years of your life. So, and I think the first, like, maybe the earlier part of my life sort of afforded me the luxury of saying, like, eh, like, you know what? You know what you're like it feels like to be happy in a position where you're um where you're passionate and and uh all that good stuff so i waited to find something that i knew i was really going to give a damn about every day so the cool down is climate but it's aimed at consumers yeah and right so, now it's aimed at consumers and the the cons- so who who do you want to come to the site what what thing are you offering them and why would they come back more than once we believe that climate is going to be sort of like the dominant issue for the rest of our lives and probably for our kids' lives as well. And right. it's, uh, it's, it's a major news story, yeah. right? But so is authoritarianism. It, it you're is. not going to start authoritarianism yeah. today. I mean, authoritarianism is not, uh, is not a new concept. Um, uh, radical accelerating climate change is. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big history geek and a lot of, a lot of, uh, why I got into this was studying different historical patterns also like paired up with the reality of what we were seeing in the Bay Area with wildfires and smoke and having kids and just seeing how much freaking plastic waste we had. And it just sort of boiled up into like, oh, my gosh, this is a really big issue. But I, through a history lens, there are certain things that come and go. And then there are other, other things that have the potential to sort of be existential crises in the sense of like it can cause your society to collapse in different different ways and the more I learned about this, and I'm, I'm not like a super left wing leaning person in like in general. I'm more of a probably classically a moderate who you know is now maybe I guess a little bit left just based on where where things have gone. But I, I the more and more I looked into this, uh, the more I realized like this is a really really big problem that is going to impact everyone significantly on the consumer side, also businesses. Like every single business is going to have to make some sort of transition. And data and information in the marketplace, like it stinks. And so that became sort of my initial hypothesis to start looking at the space or just like the quality of information in the space for everyone involved is not very good. But if you're a consumer, right, if your head is at, I want to make the world a better place. Which most people are not. Probably you don't probably don't think that way. There's another version where you go, I have looked into climate change. It's super scary. We're all kind of screwed. And by the way, telling me to recycle sounds good. It actually doesn't help anything. Uh, most of the stuff is getting burnt in a yeah. landfill Recy- anyway. Recycling was 
turned out was mostly a mostly a con job. And and so it just seems like there's a lot. Like if you're, you're trying to reach, I imagine. Um, well, who are you trying to reach? It's it's and, and how do you get them to come back? Because it seems like a lot of this stuff would be a bummer to consume on 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 a daily basis. So that's what that's what climate coverage has been like essentially for the past 10 years of like it's a lot of doom and gloom or it's boring research reports and like it just doesn't work very well. Like nobody's been able to build like to aggregate an audience around climate where people feel invested and they as to your point they come back every day because they want to be a part of something that, you know, has a chance to be better. Because if you just tell people that something um, that like, you know, the more they look at this, the more they think their life's going to suck and they shouldn't have kids and all, like it really doesn't do anybody any good. And so our goal was like, we looked a lot at like all of the amazing technologies that are coming out, um, out of the climate movement that are fundamentally going to transform our lives, our businesses, and have an opportunity to make the world better. And part of what we're doing is we are helping people to see that side of the story and then understand what they can do as an individual to be a part of it. Frankly, some of it is like we actually need people to do things. Um, Historically, it's been very difficult to accomplish hard things in this country without popular support. Right now, there's, there's not really popular support and climate's like the 17th most important issue to people in the country if you, you pull people, which is um, in my view, like totally irrational and sort of like against people's own best interests. Right, but it makes sense, right? Like climate is a thing that is going to affect me not today in the future. Correct. Um, for some people, yeah. uh, for those of you living on the East Coast, you maybe feel that more. For those of us who've been living on the West Coast, to date, we have seen right. You have more fire season, right? We like, have we have fire seasons now. We didn't used to have fire seasons. Fire seasons really suck. We also have. Uh, uh, we don't have much water left. Like that's not that's mm-hmm. not a great thing either. So yeah, we there's certain parts of the country and parts of the world that are are feeling the effects differently. But anyway, um, there's also like aside from the doom and gloom part of this and like the downside risk, there also uh, are all of these amazing things that are happening. And it turns out that people like we've built an audience really really quickly off the back of helping people connect with that. Either like here is sort of a uh, like what um, what a future world state can look like and hear the different technologies. And it's like, it's a lot of mind blowing stuff and people like reading about it and like watching it. And then also people like, like getting advice um, around like how they can save money, how can they, they can declutter their houses, how they can sell old stuff instead of throwing it in the garbage, um, how they can, how they can make health imp- health improvements in their homes. Almost all of that stuff ends up tying back to things that are good for the climate. So one of our strategies has been, like, don't lead with climate. We lead with sort of these other benefits, and we get people to do the exact same things that sort of the hardcore climate people would say to do, but we can do it in a more palatable way where people engage better. And business model, you were telling me on the way in here that you guys don't have a sales team. You're not selling ads. Presumably that will change. But how do you imagine the site is going to make money? Yeah, I'm a I'm sort of old school. I know we're not exactly in like the most like grow at all costs period right now. Screw profitability. That's not not exactly where we are at this at this very moment. But I think if you commit to building a business in this way, which is really like we're committing to saying we're trying to build the leading audience around climate and then we're going to monetize that in different ways, which we can talk about. But I think if you're running that playbook, first and foremost, you have to commit to we're going to build this audience. Um, we're going to build a big a big top of funnel, um, and we're going to learn about how you get people into the top of that funnel, which means starting with really accessible topics. So like, for example, plastics have proven, that's proven to be a really, really great way to get, you asked about target audience, like to get moms in especially. There are a lot of moms all over the country, regardless of what their politics are, that are concerned about having too much plastic in their household. A lot of people have now heard about microplastics, whether they think microplastics are a big problem or a little problem or whatever. It's a way to get somebody started on their climate journey. And it, once you can sort of get somebody to think consciously around like, you know, like we have too much stuff. We're too wasteful. We have too much food waste. You know what? We could probably save a lot of money every year if we did a better job with meal planning. You can just start to move people down the funnel. And eventually if they get to like, oh, geez, you know, the energy source that powers my house, um, that now I understand like that's coming from burning fossil fuels. And burning fossil fuels is what's resulting in global warming. And so it's like you can start with these entry-level things and move people down. So you're talking about building an audience, but in terms of making money from that audience, is that selling 
that audience to advertisers? Is it doing referral stuff, i.e. wire cutter? Like here's the best kind of, you know, non-BPA lined water bottle to buy for your kids. Click here, go to Amazon, we'll take a cut. Is it something else? My view is uh, we have a consumer business right now. We already have a, almost 10 million users a month, so it's grown very quickly. Like it took Bleacher Report almost five years to get to, to, to get to the same audience scale uh, because it turns out a lot of people do care about climate in different ways, and there's not there are not a lot of people providing the information. So there's there's good white space. We will probably eventually have marketing partnerships. Uh, we already have some affiliate. Affiliate is, you know, it's it's one that's of those. That's the wire cutter model. That's the wire cutter here, model. Buy it a takes, thing, we'll get a cut. Yeah, it takes a long time to do that, um, where you make a lot of money from it. You need a big audience. You need trust with an audience. So it, like that's part of our business. But that like that's something that that will take years to develop. What what I think we're we're very interested in moving towards and sort of like at the core of what this business really is, is it's, it's a data business. One of the big problems that I reference in this space uh, is that the data is terrible. Um, the data is terrible about what consumers are willing to do and what they are actually doing right now. And you have businesses and governments, local governments, state governments, all over the country that need to make transitions on various timelines, um, have various ESG requirements based on what line of work they're in. And most of the data that's out there today is like pretty, um, uh, I would say, insufficient survey-based data. And there's not as much data around like, here's what consumers are actually doing. And I think that's the key to making this a successful business. If you understand what consumers, based on demographic, based on region, based on value systems, are willing to do and what they are actually doing, if you know that better than anybody else, I think you could then in turn provide a lot of value to businesses. So you're selling what data about your consumers to whom? Who's What's the data and who's the buyer? Our job is essentially to understand consumers, the consumer relationship essentially with all things climate better than anybody else. In terms of who the clients are for that. Um, our view is could end up being a fairly broad-based group of clients by industry, but I'll, I'll just focus on, on one example that's sort of a, an obvious one. There are a lot of marketers um, out there that are thinking about how they are going to position their product or their service sort of based on um, new sustainability goals that their company has. And from what we see looking at our data, most of the positioning around sustainability so far is not is not in line with sort of what we would consider best practices. So are you selling them insights about a group of people or are you saying, you know, when I go to speed test or download the speed test app, no, it's not speed test, is it, is it, it is speed test, right? And, and, and the point is like they're eventually, what they're doing is really selling me to Verizon or whoever who's going to try to upsell me on a on a on a better connection for my broadband. No, our our goal will be to work with businesses directly where they subscribe to our our insights that we're providing based on data and understanding of what's going on in their particular industry. So it's a consumer facing business, but the business model is B two B. I think that our hope is to also have a you know a very like I've built a good sized consumer. Uh, consumer-facing business in the past. When I left Bleacher Report, it was almost a $200 million a year business. The cooldown, like the media side of the cooldown, I, I don't know if it can be that big. We'll see. Um, but it can be more than a $50 million business. So our, our plan is to do both. Uh, um, but I think, I think where this becomes really impactful is if we're able to sort of unlock value for businesses at scale. Do you have investors? We do have investors. So I'm... I'm earnestly trying to understand your business, and, and we've talked a couple times, and I'm still slightly confused about it. Do they are they do they get it when you're talking to them? Uh, no, not at all. No, they're they have no idea. They, they have, have no, no idea. idea. They have they're no idea. You money. That's usually how things work with investors. They <laughs> they have no idea. Um, uh, yeah, no, we're we're generally just uh, just licking our fingers and hoping it goes well. Uh, how much money have you raised? We raised a uh, $5 million seed round uh, about a year ago. About a year ago. Yeah. So different environment. Um, now than then? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Could you, could you have raised, could you raise that now if you had to, or probably? Ooh, I asked, I asked our lead investors about that and their, uh, um, what they said was 
they thought we could have they thought based on our team and track record that we could get the raise done, but we probably would have been able to raise four instead of five and probably would have raised at a lower valuation mm-hmm. than we did. So that's what that I don't know, but that's what they said because I was curious about the same question. Yeah. And it seems anecdotally like there's a bunch of consumer facing environment climate startups or is there something I mean it's a hot space it's just, so I, I get that it's a hot space for news coverage yeah um and I know that VCs kind of go in and out of being interested in climate and there's a debate about whether that's a really a VC plausible industry but in terms of a media sector it's interesting that- I would I would say VCs I would I think VCs are pretty into climate right now um I mean the amount of uh money that's been raised specifically for climate tech is pretty massive. Right. And I just think there's a counter argument that says the stuff that if you're really going to solve climate, you need to do it at a much bigger scale that it's not going to work on a, a, you know, the the VC timeline and, and the VC, you know, it's just not a good VC model, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, 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 a understood. Yeah. Familiar with that argument too. Yeah. Talk to me about what it was like to build Bleacher Report at age 21 and how it's different this time around. Obviously you learned a lot, um, but things are different too, right? You were using a combination of, of really search optimized sports stuff, and then you really got your head around social and those two things really allowed you to grow, you know, Google is is much less interested in sending traffic to publishers than it used to be, and the social world is much much different. So how are, how are you building up? How are you getting people to the website today? Yeah, I mean, we the playbook we ran at Bleacher Report was was sort of crazy in hindsight. I mean, we had we got we were at a point early on where I, I had twenty five thousand writers. I think at a certain point we were publishing 800 articles a day. Just massive churn, and then really drilling down into search and and how you were how people were were finding your. Yeah, stuff. correct. I mean, in the early days of Google News algorithms, and they were really rewarding volume. And we, you know, we sort of like threw our integrity into a corner for a couple of years and just said like, screw it, we're going to build audience at all costs. And uh, yeah, that's not how that world works at all anymore. Um, we. Uh, we publish 10 stories a day right now. Um, we did almost 9 million readers in uh, in March. And the game is really about making each piece of content as productive as we can. So it's really, it's still rooted in analytics. Um, it's, uh, um, it's about building feedback loops where you really understand what topics are, uh, um, are the topics that the most people care about. And then you, you know, it's, it's still it's still media, still data informed, and you, you shared me a, a post you'd written about sort of how what stuff performs, and I want to talk to you about that. But how do you get it to people in the first place? Because someone probably is not searching. Are they searching for stuff that and you know how to serve it to them, or do you have to get it in front of them some other way? Um, we've done really well with different syndication partnerships. Uh, I'm not very bullish on social right now at all. And we've like, we built a massive business on top of social at Bleacher Report where we're not, we're not spending much time. Uh, we've done quite well with Google. Uh, we've done quite well with Apple news, um, with MSN, with your Flipboards, your smart news is like, well, we will take, you know, we'll take audience wherever we can. Cause at the end of the day, our job is to convince passerby readers to then sign up for a newsletter and to, to basically become uh, become a loyal fan of ours, uh, so yeah, you you go wherever there's audience. Did you know from the jump that social was not going to be that important to you this time around? No, did you have I, to learn that painfully? It wasn't super painful, but yeah, over the first we launched in July, we launched on Instagram and TikTok, and sort of had this like, well, I think I think we'll build an older audience here, and we'll sort of go after the. Like especially, you know, women twenty eight and and up, and uh, and that'll be a little bit more about web and newsletters, and then we'll you know we'll get Gen Z on TikTok and Instagram, and uh, I think unless you're very lucky or very very good, um, at least better than we were earlier on, you have to spend a lot of money right now to build on social, and I I, I don't think it's a great business. And is it? Yeah, I mean, it, the first question is, can you find that audience there? Do you, um... you can find it if you willing to spend the money, I think you'd lose a lot of money in the process. But Right. And then the next question is, and can you get them from Instagram or TikTok to your site? I think that at scale, you can, it's possible to do that on Instagram. 
We had a lot of success at Bleacher Report and House of Highlights, just driving people via Lincoln bio. Like we got big enough where, you know, certain links would get 200,000 people to move over. So like it can be done, you know, building a, um, those, I mean, those two brands in aggregate probably have 60 or 70 million followers. Like you can't build stuff like that on Instagram anymore. Like the market's way too saturated. So I view social as like, honestly, it's sort of a brand play again, at least for, for our business. It's a way that people can connect to the concept, top of funnel. And, you know, it is, it is what it is, but I, I don't see it as, as a foundational pillar of our business. It's almost back to like 2005, 2006, like these things you, tend you build to go a website and, you know, I used to work at Forbes and then Forbes.com and the most important person at Forbes.com was like a 26 year old person who pitched our stuff to Yahoo News. And the, and, you know, if we could get on the Yahoo front page, that was a huge deal. And obviously it's different now, but it sounds yeah, like no, we're still it, relying on syndication deals. And in the early days of getting a media company off the ground, that's what you have to do. Like you have everybody, everybody scraps until you build a large enough direct audience where it starts to have its own gravity. And, uh, um, that's what we're doing. We're getting as many people into the top as possible. And then, I mean, what we did at Bleacher Report was initially we, I mean, we built a newsletter program of three or 4 million people. And then we sort of abandoned it when apps came along. Cause I don't, I think it's hard to do both of those well at the same time. Uh, and we, we crushed the app world and now I'm back to this phase where we're building newsletters ups and we're up and we're in a race to try to build, um, the, the most useful and biggest climate newsletter for, um, for sort of non-climate people, for sort of like the early majority of people who are thinking about buying an EV, thinking about putting solar on the roofs, want to just produce less waste, whatever their, their angle is, like we're trying to get that person, not not as much like the hardcore, I've been in the eco game for 10 years person. Yeah, you sent me this post sort of explaining what works and um, and in some ways it almost read, you said you want me to read it, it almost read defensively to me, like we know that people who are hardcore about climate are going to turn their nose up at this or, or they'll tell you that, you know, recycling efforts aren't really a good use of your time. But we're trying to reach an audience that is just getting to this for the first time and we're going to sort of move them in very slowly. And by the way, they do want to recycle, so we're going to help them figure out how to recycle. At the end of the day, my view is you can't skip steps with most people. You have to guide them. And Going from, I mean, the climate community has been trying to do this for years to basically tell people like, we don't have time. We're all going to die. Like, you have to stop doing this, this, and this right now. And uh, it might be true, but you know what? Nobody's doing it um, or only a very small percentage of people are doing it. And I think you can have a lot more success of, you know, over a couple of years, uh, you can you can make people conscious of like, I want to be less wasteful and start start there. I'm concerned about climate. This extreme weather is freaking me out, whatever. And then it it can lead to like, I'm going to switch to renewable energy in my house, which is not very hard to do for most people. Um, or the more the bigger steps of like, oh, my gosh, I've heard about this thing called the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act. And there, there, there's money available where I can replace my gas furnace when it breaks with a heat pump or my water heater with a heat pump water heater or, you know, my gas stove uh, with an induction stove. Or I've, I've heard that uh, that gas stoves um, give a lot of kids asthma. And so, you know, a lot of the hook there as well. Um, you know, I'm going to do this because it's better for my family's health. And so it's like those are the things that for the – if you're a for the planet person, which there are not many for the planet people um, at the end of the day, they're – Mostly people who are sort of like, I'm concerned about the planet, but what's in it for me? That's where most people are on this. And you you have to find a way to incentivize those people or they're not they're not actually gonna do the stuff. When there was the, you know, one the one of the most recent culture war, you know, for all of a couple of days was gas stoves versus induction. Yes. And which I was totally unfamiliar there was even a debate about this. And yeah. I have a gas stove, didn't ever think about it. Sure. Um, was that an opportunity for you guys? You're like, ah, this is what we've been talking about the whole time. Like there is an audience for this stuff and we can reach them. It's a, it's a good case study for sure. Um, gas stoves are, it's an interesting one where like in Australia, for example, um, gas stoves have come with, with warning labels, like mm-hmm. sort of like cigarettes do for a long time. Um, yeah. What I've, what I've read is that, you know, having, 
having a gas stove running in your house without the exhaust fan on or without a window open is basically like somebody chain smoking a cigarette in the corner of, of a room. Great. Um, I feel great. Yeah, no, it makes people f- feel lousy, but like it, you know, it is, it is what it is. But p- uh, part of the thing that made it a war, right, was you had people say, you'll pry that gas stove from my dead hands. I assume that the idea that people are reluctant to make changes because they're told to do so or yeah you're already familiar with it i think there's a to me there's a big difference between uh informing people and educating them about the realities versus saying like we're coming to take you know your guns we're coming to take your gas your gas stoves i don't think i don't think the government's coming in anybody's apartment and ripping out their gas stove anytime soon at the same time once you understand that methane which is what like a lot of us uh our stoves are powered by natural gas um, which is 80% methane. Methane is 80 times more powerful than carbon as a warming agent in the atmosphere. It's not a great thing to just have methane leaking and going up into the atmosphere. So, you know, like if people understand that and some people even think like, hey, the next time I move or or whatever, like I'm going to prioritize this or if I've got young kids and we're at risk of asthma, maybe I shouldn't have a gas stove. I think it's better for people to know that than not know it. So what what kind of references now a couple of times? What what kind of stuff does work for you guys? What stuff surprised you? You didn't think it would work, but it turns out it did. You, what kind of stuff did you think was going to work and didn't work? Yeah, um, I'll give you an example of something we we thought would be a cheap way to build audience early on that that hasn't worked, which is we thought we'd lean more into nature. It's sort of like oh, you know, people who are into climate are, are going to want to also celebrate the outdoors and. Talk about the you know the beautiful places in the United States and uh, and that that pretty much flopped. So we got we got away from that. Do, um, do you know why? I think we're in an age of of content offerings need needing to be fairly precise mm-hmm. and like like I think we needed to have a value proposition for people around like hey this is a guide to things that you can do um, and doing the nature thing just sort of felt like it was uh, like it was a leap. So I think we started too broad and then we sort of narrowed our our focus. One category where we've like just been like surprise is almost an understatement. What we call circular economies or sort of re-commerce opportunities, basically connecting people to oftentimes to marketplaces for for used things, like whether you know like a lot of uh, like in Gen Z, um, you know, shopping vintage has become like a totally mainstream thing versus something like in our generation it was like a little bit more of a fringe right fringe thing so my so, my kid or one of my kids is really into that he does not connect it with saving the environment he just yeah totally cool t-shirts yeah doesn't i think from our vantage point like doesn't particularly like i i don't care why he's doing it the fact that he's doing it is is um is great uh um so many brands uh that produce products whether they are um, clothing brands or electronics brands now have buyback programs uh, where you can trade. I mean, like Apple's been doing that now for what ten years. Yep. I know for a long time it's like trade in your old iPhone and get a discount on your new one. And so basically everything in the circular economy ecosystem, I would say we are we are fairly bullish on. There's a company called Got Sneakers. It's a cool service where you sign up for it. They send you a bag in the mail and you put your your old sneakers in the bag. They they clean the sneakers and then um, they mostly sell the sneakers in South America and then they they write you a check and you get some money back for your sneakers. And when that, I when I swap out my iPhone with Apple, yeah, I just want to get the new iPhone and if I if I can save some money on it, great. Yeah, right. Totally. Um, so, but but you lump that in together with I'm going to take my old shoes and give them to someone who needs shoes and. And they're actually going to reduce weight. The, the, it's, a, it's all the same thing. It's materials getting reused versus new materials being created at the same rates. Like it's all, it's all, and that's that's a great entry point for people to uh, to get introduced to the concept of like, oh yeah, I shouldn't be throwing this stuff in the garbage. There are outlets for me to um, to participate in buyback groups or in you know taking my stuff back to Best Buy or it's. Yeah, that's it's a great step forward for people culturally. We have not talked about paid subscriptions. I assume that is not a not a. We're, you're not interested in that. I mean, there was a period where everyone who came into this studio talked to me about their subscription model and how that was going to change things. It doesn't seem like it's. I think for this, I mean, this is a. Um, 
it's a mission-driven business for sure. Uh, I think certain spaces lend themselves to subscription models better. I spent two years working closely with The Athletic before they sold um, to The Times, uh, learned a lot about subscription there. Climate, like I don't think it's that helpful if you do a great job providing, no disrespect to like the New York Times or the Washington Post, they do good work. Um, but, you know, having having climate content available for 10 million people, that's nice. But like, you know, we've got like 400 million people. And uh, and so there, there needs to be strong um, information that everyone can access, not just sort of like rich intellectual people. So I, I think subscription in this space is... Uh, um, is probably something that happens more on the business side versus for for consumers. Um, yeah, they're 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 probably some hardcore. Like as you think about, you know, I think we will have better data. Probably already do have better data than anybody else in the space. Can you utilize AI to build different applications on top of that that certain people would probably subscribe to? Some people, but I don't I don't know if there's like a mass play there. Is there one overarching lesson that you took from your entire Bleacher Report experience from startup to sale to running it at the big go um, that you think about all the time as you're building a second company? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a cliche answer, but the the thing I learned at Bleacher Report is like it's sort of all about building a great team and plant like that. I think companies come down to just play play your freaking role. Um, so that like the company's not all about me. Like Bleacher Report worked because there were, you know, six or seven or eight super key people that like it was just it was a great team. The same way that like if you win an NBA championship, it's usually because like, you know, that sixth man on your team was freaking amazing. And so I I think about companies more in in that vein now where it's just like this ruthless pursuit of like our culture needs to be awesome. The people on the team need to be awesome. And that to me is like the lesson more than anything else. Like if you get if you get a great group of people together and you as the leader, um, you know, haven't put put up a losing strategy where they don't have a chance. Um, uh, that's my that's my part of the role. Then I, I think I think you got a, a decent shot at at doing something. What's the next big inflection point for you guys? Um, you're, how big is your audience now? We I think we came in at eight point seven million. Users so, in March, yeah. Like, is there some number like oh, we, once we get to this, then I can hire an ad sales team, or or then we can actually make money doing that? Yeah, I think about it more and like just to be candid in terms of um, I, like I'm not going to go hire an ad sales person or a uh, or to invest in anything outside of building an audience probably until we raise another round of financing. Um, uh, I think we'll we'll go. Our job is to test how big that audience can be with relatively minimal spend. Um, I think we'll probably get to fit at least 15 million before we start to um, feel like some walls that we need to need to break through. There's a, there's a lot of space here, so yeah, it's it's really it's really a, right now about like we've proven the audience scale piece. The next the next phase is about scaling our loyal users. It's like we we started our newsletter program in January, so it's new. We have 30,000 subscribers. Like We're trying to get to 100,000 as fast as we can. There are plenty of climate newsletters that have 30 to 50,000 subscribers, not a lot that have 100,000. Once we get to 100, we'll get, try to get to 200,000. The next goal will be to get to a million after that. So I think in terms of unlocking other business potential, if you have loyal users that are, um, that are reading your newsletter, twice a week, all the time, that are interacting in a community, that are buying products from you, that are signing up for services. Uh, that's what really unlocks the business potential here. If you just have a lot of passerby audience, like you and I have both been around media long enough to know that that's, that's a hard business. It was always a hard business, and now it's harder than it's ever been. So I just like, we've, our seed round, our, the two, the basically the two things we signed up for with Upfront, our investor, were to say, one, we're going to prove that we can aggregate a large audience in this category, which nobody had ever done before. Nobody had figured that out, uh, and several had tried with real money. And then two, that we could prove that we could get people to take action. Like, can you actually translate people who you know come in through some sort of you know digital experience, and then that actually translates to um, to them doing real things versus just consuming content and leaving? And that's one of the reasons I really like the climate space where unlike some other content categories, it lends like products and services are inherently part of the content in the space in a way that like it's just not for like, you know, if you're consuming celebrity gossip or something. 
or even sports, right? Like or it's what sports is exa- exactly the same where people are consuming, at least in sports, people have this natural, like that you referenced before, like they'll come back over and over again because they're sort of like addicted to to the experience. But, you know, selling people sports tickets or merch through uh, a sports website is almost impossible. Um, it's, you know, pe- people that people do, they have ticket deals and merch deals, but that's mostly because those companies want SEO juice, not because anything's actually selling. If, 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 I, if I came down from the mountain and said, Dave, you can no longer run a media business. Um, you can do other stuff with your life, but you can't do that. What would you do? I would probably just like go on hiking and climbing trips the rest of my life. I don't know. That's a that's a that's a great question that I was not prepared for. But I I think I would spend as much time outside as as I could. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming inside to the for, studio for me. Thanks for having me. Maybe someday you'll understand our business model. We'll I'll I'll, I'll I think uh, I will. I yeah. think I will. I think a it's, couple of years. It's, it's, a couple of years. It's you know first year of a thing. There's one figuring out how to explain it to dummies like me, and then two it probably changes too. I mean, so much of it is like you get in the game, you figure out sort of what your assets are and then like sometimes you just have to go to market and then see exactly what people want that you have but i think this space is going to be pretty popular for a long time thanks dave good luck thanks peter yep thanks again to dave thanks again to ariel hawani thanks again to jelani and travis for producing and editing the show we've got another good one for you up next week we'll see you then